Welcome to Rome. This is The Bittersweet Life with Katie Sewell and Tiffany Parks. Welcome to The Bittersweet Life, a show for expats, former expats, travel lovers, and people curious about the world. Today, a special show that was taped before a live studio audience at Cafe Nordo in Pioneer Square in Seattle. My guest was longtime expat Jennifer Rumbach. She spends her life working with refugees all over the world. Lately, she's had a particular focus on LGBT refugees and their special needs. In that vein, she's created a sensitivity training program about the gay, lesbian, bisexual, and transgender refugee community. The issue is of special interest to her, since she is also a lesbian, facing prejudice in different parts of the world. She's funny, she's smart. I think you'll really enjoy it. We began the conversation with the first time she went abroad, Ghana. And if you hear music in the background, that's because people were dancing to tango across the street. You weren't expecting to end up in Ghana. What were you expecting to do with your life? So I think I I thought that I would work in theater for my whole life because that's what I did for college. Um, I went to NYU. I studied experimental theater. I studied playwriting. And I don't know what I thought I would do with that, but something, something theatrical. Maybe be a writer. Yeah, I think that's what not I envisioned. On the, not on the stage, but no, behind the scenes. No, not on the stage, no. Definitely not. Yes. So how did that change so dramatically? Yeah, so after college, I was working for an off-Broadway theater company for about five years. I uh, managed the box office, and I wrote, I wrote plays a little bit. I dabbled in playwriting here and there. Um, had some mild success on Off, Off, Off Broadway, the festival circuit, and then, um, and then 9-11 happened. And I think as cliche as it sounds, I, I think a lot of people after 9-11 sort of re-evaluated their careers and sort of their knowledge of the world, and I was one of those people. And because NYU was a conservatory program, I had never really studied anything but theater. So I had somehow made it to adulthood without ever taking a humanities course, a political science course. So I just thought, I, I'm going to go get a master's in international relations along with everyone else that's doing that in 2002 or 2003. And then, um, and then I'll be better informed to work in the theater. So that's, yeah. Better informed to work in the theater. Yes, yes. What did Which you never think happened. you would use it for in the theater? <laughs> I thought that my, my writing would be more worldly or more political. I, I don't know. It's a good question. I'm not sure. So how does Ghana happen then? Yeah, so I went to the new school to do my master's in international relations. And while I was there, um, I applied for a Fulbright grant. And uh, I applied for Ghana specifically because I cut out all the countries in the world that required a language other than English because I only (laughs) spoke English. Uh, And then I narrowed it down to the countries that had the least number of applications. And Ghana was at the top of that list. And then I looked Ghana up on a map. And I thought, that looks like a reasonable place to go. And then I got the Fulbright. And so that's how I ended up in Ghana. Which is pretty crazy. So you didn't even know where it was. Then you end up landing in Ghana. What was it like when you got there? Um, I think that, has anyone here been to West Africa? Yes? Okay. So you'll know what I mean when I say that you don't understand what's happening at all. Any time, like any any time of day when you go outside and people are doing things, you have no idea what's going on. It's just, I think there's no place in the world that is more different from America than West Africa. So for me, I spent the first year just literally emerged in culture shock. And I think I was just spending uh, my time really just trying to figure out how to get along overseas as um, a newcomer to the world. Um, 
and how to deal with a culture that was just so different than my own. But it was a great, I think it was a great starting point because it just sort of plunges you in. Like there's no sort of halfway point when you go to West Africa. You're just, you're all in um, completely to a completely different world. Yeah. What were you, what were you doing there? So I studied, um, I did a research, I did a research Fulbright, I did a research project on non-military mechanisms of refugee camp security, which basically meant that I went into refugee camps and looked at whether they were militarized, and then if they weren't militarized, which means um, there were rebels there, did they have weapons, um, were people using the refugee camp as a rear base for the conflict, uh, how much infiltration was there in terms of recruiting people for conflicts around West Africa, and so I found camps where that wasn't happening, and I, I tried to figure out why. Um, and I did that in both Ghana and Liberia. Um, I was in Liberia very briefly, mostly in Ghana. So that's, that's what I was doing there. So interesting. So you had to come up with what your proposal was, right? When mm -hmm. you did the Fulbright, how did you come up with that as your topic? Having to go from like looking Ghana up on a map to saying, <laughs> I'm going to look at refugee camps. So, I, yeah, so I mean, refugees had always been a big interest in mine throughout my life. Um, I, I was just always very drawn to, to refugee politics and to the humanitarian aid that surrounds refugees. And so, and I'd taken a couple classes in graduate school that were specifically on refugee security. And so I knew that that was sort of an area that I was interested in and that I knew something about, nominally speaking. Um, and I also, the thing about the Fulbright is that you want to, um, you want to complement the country that you're going to by making them feel that you're going to learn something from them to take back to America. And Ghana, um, on the surface, does a, does a pretty good job handling refugees compared to other countries in Africa, in West Africa, let's say. And so my proposal was basically a compliment to them that you're so good at this, like I want to study what you're doing and then take it away and tell other people about it. Of course, when I got there and I sort of really dug in, maybe that wasn't the whole truth, but, but in any event, um, that was the basis of the proposal. And I think that's why, why they chose my proposal. Yeah. I was thinking yeah. we, should, we should talk a little bit about what being in a refugee camp is actually like. Yeah. Because I have, you know, I don't know, what do you guys think of when you think of a refugee camp? Just people in, under tarps or tents or something? Is that the reality of what it looks like? Or yeah, so there's all different kinds of refugee camps. There are camps that are the classic tarps that you see. I think you've all seen sort of the aerial shots of these enormous refugee camps in Kenya that are full of hundreds of thousands of Somalis. Um, there are camps where people have sort of put together temporary structures out of pieces of metal and wood. Um, and then there's camps that are more established and people have actually built concrete houses and that was um, the refugee camp. The main one that I worked in in Ghana was like that. It was called Budaburam and it was actually, it was called a settlement. Um, and it was, it, they, a lot of people referred to it as a five-star refugee camp because people, fortunately, people had built little tiny houses out of concrete, but that happens sort of over protracted, in a protracted refugee situation, people will build more durable housing. Um, because they're there for so many years, and that's so why it is because there. the same people are there. It's not that generally they think the camp will survive. And no, I mean generally, most in. governments don't want camps to remain. They want them to be a temporary solution. But we know in reality, people can be in refugee camps for decades. So it just really depends. I mean, I, I don't know if anybody follows the refugee camp housing news, but there's a lot of uh, innovation. There's a, there's a lot of contests that are held for people to come up with innovative solutions for refugee housing. Um, IKEA has been very involved in this, and they've actually come up with a really cool 
um, collapsible uh, structure that has walls and that has solar panels and has like an attached toilet and all of this stuff. So it's something people are always thinking about, but it's expensive and in reality, humanitarian aid workers aren't generally there when a refugee camp is being formed or settled. They come in later and so they often can't really determine what the refugee camp will look like. And uh, I guess you can't generalize, you've been in so many countries now that have refugee camps, but what is the dynamic like mm -hmm. in a camp like that? Are there people who act as leaders? Are there, you know, is everybody just utterly devastated? Like, what is the dynamic that's going on? So generally there's a refugee camp committee that is formed by refugees and is, um, works in partnership with the local government and then with the UN Refugee Agency, UNHCR. And um, they're generally sort of the people that are running the camp, and they also have things called neighborhood watch teams, which are refugee sort of security, security patrols. Um, I think it just, it depends on the camp, but I think in general, I, if there's one word that I would use to describe refugee camps, it's suspension. Because everyone is in sort of a state of suspension, whether they've been there for one year or they've been there for 10 years. They know that they're not gonna stay there, so it's, it's just this weird, purgatory between one place and another place. Well, um, I don't know how much you can remember. You've been doing this for about 10 years now, right? Mm -hmm. As far as working with refugees. Can you remember what it was like in those first camps? Do you remember any of the people and, or yeah. how you felt what that experience was like? Yeah, I felt bewildered and scared. And um, I think I felt enormously humbled. Um, and it was also my first time doing research, doing ethnography in a real setting on the ground. So um, it was difficult because you don't want to treat people like they're refugees, but yet they are refugees and that's why you're there. And so it creates a really, uh, it creates a really, a really strong dynamic that is not something that's easy to work around. And I think that's true for any anthropology or ethnography or anything, but I also uh, had a research assistant that I hired that was the wife of a Pentecostal preacher. And so I spent a lot of time at Pentecostal revivals where people would get <laughs> faith healed and like speak in tongues. And um, so it was just, from like start to finish, it was just everything was brand new for me. I what do you mean by not, by, by not treating somebody like they're a refugee? Like, what does that mean that you're trying not to do? I think there's this dynamic in the humanitarian aid world that gets established where someone needs something and they're going to act in a certain way to get it from you because they know that, um, that there's a certain person they have to be to receive the humanitarian aid. And there's a lot of, um, the sort of, in the humanitarian aid world, there's a lot of movement towards things like cash assistance. So rather than handing out dry good food or handing out tents or things like that, can you give people cash so they can operate as they normally would and like access goods on the market? Um, because it, it shifts the dynamic of what kind of license people have over their own destiny. And I think it's just, it's difficult to have someone look at you as anything other than someone that is there to provide a specific service. And if I were the refugee, I would also do whatever I could to make someone see me as vulnerable in the way they need to see me in order to give me that good. Because that's what you do when you need something. So, yeah, It's almost like you're making it seem like you're even worse off. Is that? And that happens, right? Mm -hmm. that, that definitely happens. I mean, people take advantage of all kinds of systems. We see it happen in um, emergencies, too, in Nepal, which we'll talk about later. Um, during the earthquake response, there were definitely people that said that they were earthquake affected that weren't. I mean, this, is, this happens, I think it happened during Katrina in the US, it happens in every 
situation. So it's, and then you get skepticism on the part of aid workers because of that, and then that creates even a worse dynamic. So it's just something you always have to keep an eye on. Yeah. As an aid worker, is it traumatizing at all? So there's something that we talk about um, in the aid world. It's called secondary trauma or vicarious trauma, and that is the trauma that sort of you go through because of all the stories that you hear. And I spent maybe the first seven years that I was working in this field um, being very, like scoffing at that and being very, um, I wouldn't, didn't even want to talk about it because I thought it was so ridiculous, right? Because here you have a person who's gone through such terrible things and then to claim that you are suffering some kind of trauma because you're working with them just seems like the haughtiest, like, I don't know. Get over yourself. Yeah, get over yourself. You're such a jerk. Like, what is wrong with you, right? And you're being paid well, and at the end of the night, you go have a cold beer and sleep in your, like, nice house or hotel room, and meanwhile, the people that you're working with live in this refugee camp and maybe don't have electricity or enough food to eat. So anyway, but I, I think that it, it, is, it is a real thing. Vicarious trauma is real, and you find that over the years, you have stories that just never leave you. Um, and some of them are really haunting, and so you have to figure out a way to sort of deal with that and to process that in your normal life. And I, I think that's one of the things that makes coming home so difficult for humanitarian aid workers and reintegrating themselves back into society. Because there's this suspended world that they live in where everyone is aware of those stories and you have a spoken, shared language surrounding that. And then leaving that and coming back to a place like the U.S. Is, it can be really difficult. Is there one of those stories? Yeah, the, the first, um, the first uh, refugee population I worked with in Ghana as a caseworker in resettlement um, was th they were a group of Darfuris who had um, walked all the way from Darfur to Ghana because they heard that Ghana was a peaceful country. And I don't even honestly think they knew where Ghana was, but they somehow found their way there all the way through Cameroon and Nigeria across, and they were, we found them living in a public square. There were about 80 of them. Um, and so UNHCR accommodated them into an existing refugee camp, and then the U.S. decided to take them for resettlement. Um, and so we interviewed them, and uh, one man that I met, he had been um, fleeing Darfur with his sister, and they were both injured, and they were both sick. Um, and at one point on the journey, he couldn't carry her anymore, and she couldn't walk. And so he had to leave her under a tree. And I guess presumably she died there. So, I mean, that's the kind of story that you just, I mean, how do you, how do you even like, comprehend that kind of story, right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, you mentioned about the U.S. came and took, the, took that group. They decided yes. that group was going to be resettled. Yeah. How does the U.S. determine right. who we're taking? So the U.S., so I'll talk about refugee resettlement a little bit because that's what I, that's what I do now. So the U.S. takes, uh, right now they take 70,000 refugees a year. Um, and which is the most out of any country in the world that accepts refugees for resettlement by far. About 90,000 refugees a year are resettled, so the U.S. takes the vast majority. Um, and the, the, most of them are basically referred by the U.N. Refugee Agency, and the U.N. Refugee Agency determines who qualifies for, uh, for refugee resettlement, um, and that's based on a whole tier of criteria that they have. It's basically the worst cases, the neediest cases, um, people who have been tortured, um, people who uh, have no integration prospects, so there's no way that they can stay where they are, they're being threatened um, by the local community, they can't go back home. 
Um, sometimes we'll, we tend to take uh, more single mothers with children. Um, so these are all sort of the criteria that they look at. And so when you have someone that's being referred for a settlement, they're generally the worst case scenario out of that larger refugee population. Um, and then in some cases, the US takes refugees that are self-referrals. So they're, for instance, the Iraqi program are Iraqis who worked with the military and they just sign up. They just sign up themselves, yeah. Um, so once they get to the United States, if we're taking 70,000 people a year, what services do we have in place for them coming here? Yeah, so I'm not, this is not my expertise, I'll just say. Um, <laughs> depends on the state. It's different in every state. And um, some resettlement agencies in some states have programs that um, maybe go on longer than others. In general, refugees get about three months of assistance. That's just the general package, and then other things can be added on to that. Um, but I'll tell you that the, the space between what people receive and their expectations is vast. Um, and we give them classes before they come to America. They're called cultural orientation classes. And we teach them um, about the kind of things that they can expect in America, the kinds of people that they'll meet. Um, in some cases, like with the Bhutanese, we teach them about Western bathrooms and kitchens um, because they've never seen them. Um, how to fly on an airplane. We have mock airplanes that we've built in classrooms to teach people how to find the bathroom on the airplane and how to ask for water, how to find their seat. Um, but people still arrive with expectations that are just sky high about what they'll get in America. And um, it's a big disappointment to a lot of people, unfortunately. Would that be accurate? Yes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, OK. I, I want to just ask you one more question, and then we're going to invite Max up, if you're ready, with our next cocktail. OK. All right. I don't want to run into that too much. Um, so it doesn't that seem slightly surprising that we're taking 70,000 refugees a year given the tenor of our immigration discussions in, in Congress? Yeah. Why do you think that you know, people can be so up in arms about immigration and so not up in arms about the fact that we're bringing 70,000 people in and giving them mm -hmm. maybe not enough support to make it here? Right. I, it's, this is a great question because it's a congressional program. I mean, Congress renews the program every year, and then the president sets the ceiling of how many refugees we'll take. So, I mean, the program is originating with Congress. But I think in, in terms of the American public, people are generally not aware that we have a refugee resettlement program. I think if more people knew about it, maybe there would be um, more have a, have a blub in the news, um, so it's probably better that people don't. But uh, in terms of the government, I think that this program, for the most part, is just purely a humanitarian program. And it really, I mean, the US is the biggest funder of UNHCR, the refugee agency. Um, they're one of the biggest funders of my organization, which is another behemoth uh, UN-type international organization. And um, this is what they see as their responsibility and commitment to the humanitarian system and to the people that are the worst affected by conflict um, in the world. That being said, there's definitely a tension between uh, the part of the government that's admitting the refugees and the part of the government that's responsible for the security checks for the refugees. Um, and that process of security checks does delay things quite a lot. By, it can even delay it by years. So, that, that is sort of a, a point of um, tension within the system. But overall, I see that the refugee resettlement program is, you know, will probably just keep expanding. Yeah. 
You said it went down during 9-11 and it's coming back It up. did. After 9-11, it was suspended. And then um, it's slowly, the ceiling has slowly been raised over the years. And now we're back at 70,000 and hopefully it'll go up even more in the years to come. So with the next cocktail, we're moving on to her time in Baghdad. So before we leave West Africa, yeah, I want to ask you um, about the Liberia hot dog story. <laughs> yes. What? She sent me a, a couple notes before I showed up, and one of it just says Liberia hot dog story. And so I need to know. Yeah. What the world. <laughs> so Liberia. So I, I think I like telling this story because I think it's a good example of um, just basic cultural assumptions that we make when we're overseas and how we approach countries that are different than ours and how we approach ourselves in those countries. So I, I went to Liberia. Um, all of the refugees I was working with in Ghana were Liberians. So I really wanted to get to Liberia and meet some people that had been in Ghana and gone back meet some people that never went. Um, and I met a lot of rebels, a lot of um, ex-soldiers, mostly child soldiers, who had fought in the conflict. We traced um, their route uh, back through Bomi County to where the, the famous um, battle on the bridge had been during the conflict with Charles Taylor. And so while I was there, we were being sort of hosted by a friend from USAID. And um, he, USAID. sorry, it's uh, basically working with the US government, Liberian, a Liberian man. and. That meant that he had us over for every meal. And we also were being served breakfast at the hotel and by other friends who so were eating like 10 times a day. And at every meal that we were served, there were hot dogs. Um, at the hotel, they were cut up in little pieces and mixed with the scrambled eggs. And then at Chris's house, whatever we were being served, which was usually some kind of sandwich with the crust cut off and like a glass of Kool-Aid, there would be a hot dog next to it. <laughs> and I, I kept telling him, I was like, you know, I love Liberian food. It's my favorite, which was actually true. Um, and I was like, I, you know, you don't have to go to the trouble to service American food. I haven't even lived in America in a while. Um, and he was like, no, it's fine. This is what we eat. And I was like, I just, I, my friend that I was with, we kept talking about it. We were like, they must have this idea that America is just like one big hot dog everywhere that people are eating. Um, then I'm sitting on his front porch one day with a, some of his neighbors, and this guy comes down the street with this enormous box on his head. A lot of things in West Africa are sold off of people's heads on the street. And the guy puts the box down and calls something out, and people come running from everywhere, from all over the neighborhood, with money in their hands. And he opens the box, and it's full of hot dogs. It's like packs and packs and packs of hot dogs. And he's cutting them open, and people are buying like one hot dogs, two hot dogs, wrapping them in newspaper. And I was like, well, I'll be damned. <laughs> Liberians really love hot dogs. And then I was like, everything that I think about is about me just has nothing to do with me. Did you ever get to the bottom of why they love hot dogs? I never got to the bottom of it. No. <laughs> That's pretty good. Uh, so how did you end up in Baghdad? Yeah. So when I was in Ghana, I had started working in refugee resettlement. Um, and so uh, I was working for a different organization than I do now. And then my organization, which is the International Organization for Migration, basically poached me to come work on the Iraq program, um, which had just started. So it was, a, it was a resettlement program that is a little unusual because it's for Iraqis who are in Iraq. Um, we also were resettling Iraqi refugees from all over the Middle East, of course. Um, but this specific program was for people that were still living within the country. And so technically they're not refugees because to be a refugee you're supposed to have crossed an international border. 
but the US government can give special designation to people when they want, when they want to. Um, so they gave the Iraqis in Iraq a special designation through um, the Kennedy legislation. And so I had really wanted to work on the Iraq program. I felt like it was sort of uh, something that I could do to somehow contribute to the cleanup, I guess you could say, of the Iraq war. So I went to Egypt first, which is where we set up the program. I was there for a year, and then we were briefly in Jordan, and then I moved to Baghdad um, and lived there for three years. And uh, basically just was the head of that program and of the other processing that we were doing in Iraq. We um, resettled all of the Palestinian refugees from no man's land in the northern part of the country as well. So we've heard so much about Baghdad for years because of the war. From your point of view, what was it actually like to live there? Yeah, so I lived in the green zone in the American embassy. I don't know if anyone's read um, Imperial Life in the Emerald City, but that is basically what it was like. Um, what is that? It was, it was uh, you know, I also was fascinated to go to Baghdad because I really wanted to sort of rubberneck the American war machine. And, um, and, and it was, I mean, that was the best place to do it. Uh, the embassy is the largest embassy in the world. It's about 400 acres. Um, they had about 5,000 people living there when I left. And um, we also had bases all over the city and all over the country, of course. Um, so I lived at the American Embassy, and then I worked at um, Camp Prosperity, which was a base that used to be um, one of Saddam's palace complexes for his first wife. Um, and it had the palace on it that we had bombed um, in the war, which is sort of a famous, iconic image. And so we worked in a building that was um, one of Saddam's guards' offices or outposts, um, and that's where our office was. So it was, um, you know, it was, it was the kind of life where every day vacillated wildly between, um, I guess, like ongoing adrenaline highs and then like complete boredom. Um, and there was never anything in between. Uh, we were, especially in 2000, 2009, 2010, before the military withdrew, there was still a lot of um, sort of active conflict happening. The U.S. Embassy got hit with a lot of rocket fire, which wasn't ever in the news because um, they didn't want the people who were shooting the rockets to know that they had hit the target of the embassy. Um, but the embassy took a lot of hits. Um, some people died uh, there while I was there. And um, so there was kind of that security element um, we couldn't move anywhere outside of the green zone without being in body armor, and sometimes I would go out. We had medical clinics for the refugees that I would go to, and we'd have a Black Hawk following us um, over our convoy. So it was just, things were very high security. Um, and then on the other hand, so that's sort of on one side. On the other hand, with the refugees, we had a queue of about 80,000 people at the beginning that were trying to get into the program and access resettlement. And I don't know if anyone's read any of the news stories that were written about the Iraqi resettlement program or heard the This American Life story, um, but it was a quite desperate situation. And we were literally, we, the program was literally, uh, was literally kept as small as it was because of the size of our office. And in the end, that's what it all came down to because our staff were not allowed to work um, without being under heavy cover because of the rocket fire. And so we were confined to the space we had because it cost millions of dollars to build overhead protection for buildings. So we couldn't build new overhead protection on buildings. So we had to use the space that we were given. So we had people working in the hallways. We partitioned up the offices so it was like room for like a little desk and then like people could kind of pile up on top of each other for their interview. Um, and we squeezed every ounce of space out of it. But then at a certain point, we just hit our limit. 
Um, so we had you know, thousands of people who were desperate to get an interview, and the queue was about two years long. So we would just get thousands of emails um, of people who, I mean, they were dying. They were being assassinated. Their children were being kidnapped. Um, I got emails from people saying they would see me in heaven. I mean, it was just like heart-wrenching, right? So that was on one hand. And then on the other hand, I spent a lot of days looking for printer cartridges and trying to find, like, you know, paper because we had to print refugee files. Um, and office supplies were short and short supply. And, you know, it was just these, like, very quotidian sort of boring tasks that I would find myself as the manager engaged in. And then interspersed with these, like, wildly, um, wildly, uh, I guess, adrenaline-spiking situations. Yeah. So that was, that was daily life. Did that have a lasting effect on your thinking, would you say, going forward? Or how did that change you as a person, would you yeah, say? Yeah, um, it, it took me a long time to get over that experience. I think that you get addicted to the adrenaline. Um, and this, uh, we were talking before about war reporters and how war reporters... Um, become addicted to the adrenaline of reporting on war, war photographers, and it's very hard for them to do anything else. And I think that the, the, the transition away from that to like a more normal refugee, humanitarian aid worker life, it was difficult. It was difficult for all of us. I was with three people in Baghdad who then, we all moved to Nepal at the same time. Um, and Nepal has a festival called Tihar, which is where they shoot off little rockets and like fireworks, and it happened right after we arrived. And it was like the worst thing ever. We were like all under our kitchen tables, you know, um, because it takes you a long time to to realize that you're no longer you're no longer in Baghdad. So hard to give up, but would you say were you sad to give it up? To the I center? was happy to leave. Okay. Yeah, no, it was it was the time. It was the right time to leave. Yeah. And what was the goldfish in the sky? Yeah. So this another is, one of her cryptic notes. Another said. one of my cryptic notes. This is another thing about daily life in Baghdad. I mean, the embassy, the U.S. government made great. They really made great efforts to make you feel like you were living a quote-unquote sort of normal life. Um, they would have like holiday parties and different events at the embassy, and they served American food in the cafeteria, and you know all of this. But then you're walking to work and you see these helium balloons in the sky that are there to um, monitor incoming rocket fire through the airspace and set off the duck and cover alarms. Um, and then you remember where you are. Or like one time there was like a bomb bot on the sidewalk that I had to like, I almost tripped over, which is like a little robot that detects bombs. You know, and it's like, this is not normal. This is not normal life. <laughs> and what... What as far as Saddam Hussein, would you say, any remnants of him did you encounter? I mean, obviously the remnants of him in the war you yeah. encountered, but him specifically? Yeah, Saddam life? was sort of everywhere in Baghdad, actually, because we worked in his palace complex. Um, his initials, we would see his initials everywhere. They're etched into all of the walls around our offices. They're etched into the things over the offices. Um, but I also, I, one of the special groups, we, we settled some like, little special groups of people um, who are part of the Iraqi government, and one of them that we settled were the judges and the staff members of the Iraqi High Tribunal, which was the court that, um, that convicted um, Saddam. And they were in danger because uh, all of the proceedings had been televised. And so I think it was Al-Qaeda in Iraq that was after them. They, of course, now are um, known as ISIS. Uh, and uh, so they were nominated for a resettlement by the U.S. government. They didn't all end up going, um, but we were um, interviewing them at the embassy, and there were a couple Americans who were the 
um, go-between between the IHT and the U.S. Embassy. And they invited me one day to go over to the Iraqi High Tribunal and see where Saddam had been tried and where um, he had been held. So I go over there, and they have a little museum in this building. This is the old Bath Party headquarters that was just across the street from the U.S. Embassy in the Green Zone. And they have this little museum um, that is mostly things from the Kurdish genocide. But they had a whole case of the things that Saddam had with him when he was found in his like underground hiding hole. They had his clothes, and they had everything that was in his pockets. And it was just like these very, these very like human things, like ibuprofen and cotton swabs, and you know these these like little things that just a person would carry around that you wouldn't think Saddam would have in his pockets. Um, cotton swabs, certainly not. Yeah, I mean, I'm not sure if it was exactly cotton swabs, but it was like, <laughs> like something like who that. Who that around in their It was like pharmacy items, you know, that he had with him. Um, and then we went over to the court where uh, Saddam was tried, and one of these men had been basically Saddam's, for lack of a better word, companion for the two years while he was on trial and before he was executed. Um, he was a Lebanese-American man, and... I guess Saddam needed an interpreter, he needed someone to be with him um, to just keep him company and uh, you know, interpret for him at meetings and things like that. Um, and uh, he didn't trust an Iraqi um, to spend time with him, and so the Americans assigned this guy who worked with the American government. Um, and so he spent a good deal of the last couple of years of Saddam's life um, with him, and he told me that Saddam um, smoked a lot of cigars. He smoked like up to 10 cigars a day. Uh, he ate a lot of oranges. Um, this guy would like peel Saddam's oranges for him. Um, and in some way, they kind of became friends. And I, I asked him if he missed him, and he said he did, which I thought was really interesting. Spend that much time with somebody. Yeah, you can get to you can get attached to anyone. Yeah. Yes. Well, maybe he was a deep good guy down down below. <laughs> I don't know. Um, uh, anyway, well, one of the other things that I think is so interesting about your time there is that's when you start creating a training program, a sensitivity training program mm -hmm. um, for LGBTI mm -hmm. refugees. How did that begin? Why did you start doing that? So in Iraq, um, in 2009 and then again in 2011, 2012, there were these big surges of violence against LGBTI people, mostly gay men. Um, in which hundreds were killed and a lot had to flee the country or go underground. Um, and they were, very, they were very well publicized. It was all very public. Um, the Shia militias were posting execution lists with people's names on them in the streets and saying, if you find these people, you should kill them. Um, and people were just being killed in the most horrific ways, like unspeakable, unspeakable ways. Um, and very publicly as a warning to others. And so what we began to see is uh, LGBTI uh, refugees coming in and for the first time disclosing their sexual orientation or their gender identity to us, which they wouldn't under normal circumstances necessarily do because they wouldn't feel comfortable. Um, and my caseworkers, who were from all over the Middle East, they weren't Iraqi. We, we didn't hire Iraqis because of the kidnapping threat um, that would be against them, but they were from Morocco and Jordan and Egypt. Um, and they were... Uh, they were they were completely helpless as to what to do and how to handle these cases because they hadn't really worked with LGBTI people before. Most of them thought they'd never met an LGBTI person. Um, they just literally had no cultural competency on this topic. And homosexuality is something that's talked a lot about in the Middle East, but never in a positive way. 
And so they all knew what it was that we were talking about, but they, uh, they didn't uh, necessarily know how to handle someone that would come and disclose that information to them. So we sent them to a training with this Lebanese group in Jordan. Um, it was a sensitivity training and, and taught them like, you know, how to think maybe differently about this topic. They came back and they were like, okay, so now we understand like what you want us to think about, you know, how to be sensitive about this, but we still don't know what to do when someone walks in. I don't, I don't know how to help them. I don't know what to say. I don't know what not to say. And at that time there was just, there was no other training available. So I thought, well, I should make one. So I did. Um, and I started training uh, my staff and then I trained other UN staff. And at first it was a day long and then it became two days. Um, it was a lot of basics, terminology, um, what's going on around the world that affects people, international law, why do we look at this topic from a human rights perspective, um, communication, how to create a safe space. Um, and then in 2011, President Obama issued an executive order that said that uh, federal agencies had to fund international organizations to work with LGBTI refugees and asylees. And that really just changed everything for, for us um, in the field. Um, because the State Department mandated that all of our staff have training on working with LGBTI people. And since I was already doing the training, I got to do it for a lot of the resettlement offices. Did you find that people were anxious, open to the training, or was it something you had to drag people to, kicking and screaming? I had one staff member who got diarrhea three times in a row. <laughs> and I finally held a special training like just for him to attend, and I got him into it. But um, yeah, no, people are enormously nervous about this topic. They feel super uncomfortable. They don't, they don't want to attend a training about it. But they're also, they're also professionals, and they're humanitarian aid workers. And at the end of the day, they want to do their job well. And so I'm, I'm so grateful that I started doing this training in Baghdad because I think it was, it was the best place to start because the attitudes there are as extreme as you're going to get. Um, and so I had to find a way to approach the topic um, in a manner that was palatable to people. And so my approach to the training, uh, which is controversial, especially with the Western audiences I've trained, is that I meet people where they are and then I walk with them from that point. So if that means I have to embrace their homophobia, I embrace their homophobia or their transphobia or whatever it is because I found that if you don't do that, they're not going to go anywhere with you. What, do, what does that mean? How do you do that? So I have a speech that I give at the beginning of the training, and it's also on the PowerPoint slides, um, that basically says this training is not intended to change your personal beliefs. We recognize that there's a wide range of cultural, social, religious and other beliefs, um, and in every country, in every city, every village, people are going to think different things about this topic. They use different language to describe it. Um, there's different attitudes and opinions, and we respect yours, whatever it is. Um, and we respect you, regardless of your opinion. And this training um, recognizes that there may be a tension between your professional obligations to serve everyone with dignity and respect, and then your personal belief system um, that may lead you to believe that you cannot uh, work with an LGBTI person. And so this training is designed to bridge the gap between the two and give you the comfort and the confidence to do your job um, in a professional manner and to be able to work with everybody. And so when you approach it that way, people are like, okay, this is gonna help me be able to walk into the office and, and work with these people I need to work with. But you're not gonna ask me to change my religious beliefs. Now, in reality, it's like a little bit of a Jedi mind trick because people do, I find, come out the other end of it with different opinions. I've, I think the best compliment I ever got was someone said at the end of a training, they said, 
now I think this is natural. Before I thought it was unnatural, but now I think it's natural. And I was like, that's really nice. Yeah. In one of the, I, I read a bunch of articles that you wrote, and I don't remember which one I read it in, but um, one of them you sort of stressed that it was very important for these people to feel comfortable to share the fact that they were in one of these groups. Why is it important for them to share that in a, you know, if there's a whole yeah. bunch of refugees in a traumatizing situation, why, mm. why is it important for them to share their sexual orientation? Yeah. So, you know, LGBTI people uh, are marginalized and stigmatized and harmed in very specific ways in humanitarian emergencies. Um, often people have uh, support networks before an emergency that is very different than the support networks other people in a society have. So whether it's relying on chosen family or community centers or a doctor at a health clinic that you can trust or whatever it is, that's very different than people who turn to the common consumption of aid and of community centers and all of that. So during an emergency, when those systems collapse, LGBTI people are left really particularly vulnerable. And then the systems that we put in place to address emergencies often don't address LGBTI people. So while everyone else can go get aid from the general queue, LGBTI people, for a lot of different reasons, often can't. Or they're, they're made more vulnerable by doing so. So for many people that are in displacement or refugees, um, they need protection help that is specific to being LGBTI. And they need it while they're in that situation. And then also, they may need special help when they're resettling or when they get to their new country of resettlement. Um, and we find that LGBTI refugees, um, they struggle in, in all of those phases, maybe more so than other people. Um, they face a lot of isolation and a lot of abuse from their community of origin, from their community of asylum. Um, and so they really need a lot of special support. So if they can come to us and feel confident telling us that they're LGBTI, um, then we can help them with that special support. And if they tell us when they're coming to America that they're LGBTI, then we can make sure that on arrival they have services and the support that they need to be yeah. successful in America. Do they, um, are they chosen to be, come to America more frequently than other people? LGBTI that... people are given prioritized access oh, to durable solutions like resettlement, yes. Because in general, globally speaking, they're, they're persecuted uh, in so many places where we work and where there's conflict and where we have refugee populations. Mm -hmm. They're just particularly vulnerable, yeah. I know that this is a program that you've actually gotten some global buy-in, like your program is now going global. Yeah. <laughs> how, did, how did that happen? So there, there are sort of two gigs in the world uh, with LGBTI refugee trainings. There's me and then there's another organization, an NGO. Um, and they do a lot of great training for governments and they do some NGOs and things like that. But within the UN system, there was really nothing. And so last year, uh, the UN Refugee Agency came to me and said, we want to create a global training for our staff worldwide and for the staff of all of the other, you know, the staff of the other UN agencies can use it and different NGOs and partner organizations and host governments and all of this. Um, and so they asked um, if I would share my materials, and I said yes, but I'd, I'd like to develop them for you um, because there's a lot of different places I want to take the training. And so we've been collaborating on it for about a year and a half now. Um, and it's now a, a five-module training package that would take about 10 days to complete if you did the whole thing, which, of course, nobody will ever do. Um, but it, it has everything from how to do interviews with people to how to adjudicate, legally adjudicate their claims, um, to how to do protection in the field in refugee camps and in urban settings, um, and then a lot of thematic topics like health and international law and um, 
case resettlement. There's a whole section on resettlement. Um, and so that's going to be released. Uh, it's going to start to be released at the end of July publicly. This and month. so this month, yeah. So, um, so anybody will be able to use it. Yeah, thank you. <laughs> All right, so maybe just quickly walk us through how did you get from to Nepal from Baghdad? Right, so, uh, so I knew I had to leave Baghdad. And it was, I had hit my three-year mark, which was the mark I set for myself when I went there, um, that I wouldn't stay more than three years. And so I was offered the job in Nepal to be the director of uh, the Resettlement Support Center, which is the US center that basically manages all of the, um, we call it refugee processing, which sounds a little technical or maybe a little factory-ish, but manages the processing of all the cases for the refugees that are going to be resettled from South Asia. That one's in Nepal. There's nine resettlement support centers worldwide, and that's where all the refugees come from. They come through these resettlement support centers, and then they go all over America. Um, so the one I had been at in Iraq was part of the Middle East and North Africa resettlement support center, and so now I was offered the job to go lead the South Asia resettlement support center. Um, I turned it down three times uh, because I did not want to go to Nepal. And then finally, I, with nothing else on the horizon, I said yes. And so I went. Um, so in Nepal, we were working in a remote part of the country on the Indian border um, in the eastern part of the country because there were uh, pretty enormous Bhutanese refugee populations there. And so they had put the resettlement support center out there because of proximity to the refugee camps. Why didn't you want to go to Nepal so much? I uh, had been, I, I felt like I had been at hardship duty stations, um, as we call it, for maybe a little too, too much in the first six years that I'd been abroad. And um, I really was more interested in going to a non-hardship duty station, uh, which could, be lots of, could look like lots of different things. For instance, Kathmandu, Nepal is a non-hardship duty station. But Damak is a hardship duty station because it's so remote and isolated. Um, and there are only about 30 foreigners there in that whole part of the country. They all work in refugee resettlement. You spend a lot of time with them. Um, and it's sort of difficult to get from there to Kathmandu. You have to take a flight by Yeti Airlines. Their motto is, we fly with you, which always made me grateful, because if not, who would fly the plane? <laughs> but um, so that's why it's, it's a hardship duty station. Yeah, that's why I didn't want to go. And did your, your work on the LGBTI work continue in Nepal? Yeah, so this was actually one of, one of the reasons I'm so grateful that I did go to Nepal, um, other than it being a great experience to run the resettlement support center. We actually, we also covered India, Sri Lanka, Pakistan, Afghanistan, um, in addition to Nepal. So I got to travel a lot around the region, especially to India and Pakistan. Um, but one of the reasons I'm so grateful I went is that I ended up doing a lot of LGBTI training, both in Nepal and in other countries. I've trained in about 16 countries now. And I did the bulk of that during the two and a half years that I was in Nepal. So I was kind of in Nepal about half the time, and then the other half I was traveling the region or doing training somewhere. Yeah. So <laughs> I want to ask you about your own sexual orientation and how that if that affects your work. Mm -hmm. So I, I think that one of the reasons that I, I started doing the training was because I am queer, and so I, it's something that I've been thinking about my whole life. And so it's just, you know, it's sort of, it's just sort of like an interest. I think, well, I guess when you're queer, you're, it's an interest of yours. <laughs> it's sort of strange to say. <laughs> I don't know, 
would anybody agree with that? It's like something you think about a lot and you read about and you have like a lot of other queer friends and you know, you talk about it a lot. And so yeah, so it's kind of on the, it's there on the surface. Um, uh, so I felt like this was sort of one contribution I could make. Um, and I think it, it has like really informed the way because of because I'm queer and because I have access to a lot of queer communities and I'm very interested in queer politics, it has really informed the way that the training has been shaped. And I think the training would have looked very different if someone, not that someone who's not queer couldn't have made a beautiful training package, but I think that to stay on sort of the cutting edge of what people are thinking about, um, about LGBTI politics, it, it really helps to have that personal experience. Um, this is in relation to sort of how we think about gender, what words we use, how we think about LGBTI's Western concepts versus non-Western concepts. There's a lot of sort of global politics surrounding this. And I, I think it's very helpful to be sort of yourself involved in it and thinking about it on a personal level. And getting certain reactions, I'm sure, from the people you're working with. Yeah, so I, I, I mean, I think every country I've trained in, there's been interesting reactions. Um, I always get asked a lot of very um, uncomfortable questions that I'm happy to answer. Um, I think like Pakistan. <laughs> uh, you know, I've had people ask me, "What's the? What are the links between homosexuality and bestiality? Um, what? How do you compare, you know, homosexuality to like having sex with inanimate objects?" Um, <laughs> people read things on the internet. There's all this stuff in America about toaster, like you'll marry your toaster. Like I think people read the, it's like posted on, I don't know. Um, people ask uh, a lot of questions. There's a, there's a very pervasive belief in many places in the world that you're gay because you were raped. And so there, I always get a lot of questions about that. Um, in Pakistan, I got the most surprising question, which was, how do lesbians have sex? And I actually blushed, and I didn't answer it. And I was like, I think I said, like, oh, you could Google that or something. <laughs> and then after, after the training, I was like, don't Google that. You will get arrested. Don't, don't Google that. <laughs> I mean, they ban YouTube in Pakistan and Facebook, so yeah. I, but, uh, but I think the best reaction was I, I got in Nepal. In Nepal, it's a really, it's a, they have a fascinating cultural understanding of sex and gender where the two just like literally can't be separated um, because the def part of the definition of a woman, and I'm, I'm very oversimplifying things here, but it's much more complex, but on a simple uh, level, part of the definition of being a woman is that you love men, and part of the definition of being a man is that you love women. So if you don't love men, then you're not a woman. You're something that they call third gender, and if you're a man and you don't love women, you're also third gender. And so the idea to my staff that, um, that a woman would be very feminine um, and be a lesbian is just a completely alien concept um, because they think that you have to be trans, basically what we would call transgender if you have same-sex attraction. And so when I'd be giving training, once I kind of understood that there was this confusion, and they got a lot of training because I was there, so we'd do refreshers every few months. And so one of the trainings, I was like, all right, let me use myself as an example. And I thought I was out in the office, right? And so I was like, uh, so I am feminine. I have long hair and you know, I wear makeup, et cetera, and I like women. I am attracted to women. And they were like, well, hypothetically, 
if you were attracted to women, then you would look like a man. And I was like, no, I am feminine and I am attracted to women. And they're like, well, yes, hypothetically, if you were, you would cut off all your hair. And I'm like, no, right now, today, I am. And they're like, yes, we know if you were. I'm like, okay, just forget it. <laughs> But it's a problem because, you know, in a place like Nepal, all lesbians are invisible, right? And all gay men are invisible. So it's interesting. Yeah. Well, we had a request during the break about um, going a little bit more into what your training program actually does. Yeah. I remember you mentioning that there's a, some of it involves games and quizzes. Mm -hmm. Can you give us an example of yeah. how you're training people to? So the whole training is interactive um, because I believe in participatory learning. So uh, for we spend a lot of time on terminology. That's the very first unit because we have to figure out what, what it is we're talking about. And to a lot of people, these words are completely new. So we have a terminology board game that we play where they have to match up terms and definitions. And then we talk about all of them. It's a lot of fun. I like to pull it out at parties. Um, <laughs> it's actually harder than you would think, too. Um, and then we do a global overview section that talks about, it sort of starts to get into human rights and legal instruments and talks about um, persecution around the world, um, criminalization, um, things like that. And we do a quiz for that. And then there's a section on successful communication. And I think this is, um, this is one of the most important sections we do because um, even when people are sensitive to LGBTI persons, um, in a lot of places in the world, people don't know how to react when someone tells them that they're LGBTI. And I've had people confess all kinds of things. They've confessed that when someone told them they were gay, they laughed, um, that they left the room, uh, that they sat in silence and stared at the person, that they acted like they hadn't spoken. Um, I had one woman confess to me that she told them they were shameful. And people don't mean to, uh, to basically persecute the person sitting in front of them. It's just that they're uncomfortable and they don't, they don't know what to do. So the successful communication section, among other things, teaches them that first reaction. And they learn in my training to say, thank you for sharing that with me. And they practice saying it. Um, and there's the exercises to see how it would play out um, in different little scenarios that they watch people do. Um, so that they have that in their head, so when they meet an LGBTI person, or really any person who's dif expressing difference that they don't feel comfortable with, they, they automatically have a response for it. Um, so that's the kind of thing that's in the training. And then we go deeper into a lot of technical, a lot of technical issues, protection, um, the first 24 hours of a humanitarian emergency, how to respond, um, healthcare issues, uh, how to conduct interviews respectfully, et cetera. Is there any section of it that you find people have a harder time learning? I think that uh, people, I think the hardest thing for people to learn is that LGBTI people, that's not one, like one person is not LGBTI, and LGBTI people are not all the same. Um, I see status nodding. <laughs> I mean, this is a challenge just in daily life, right, um, for being LGBTI within the spectrum. And so teaching people that there's a difference between someone who's a lesbian, difference between someone who's transgender, and then all the other diversity factors that we see come into play, like age and disability, family, whether they have children, um, whether they fled with family members or whether they didn't, um, whether they have a partner, that all enormously impacts um, the way that they provide assistance. So our protection module is an entire day, and a lot of that day is trying to parse out um, in different kinds of emergency settings how you would work with different populations. It was interesting because before 
we started, I, I asked you if I could ask you about your own dating life as a person who's constantly moving around and is living in countries where lesbians are invisible mm -hmm. to the population. Do you feel like talking about that? In front of <laughs> yeah, why not? Um, I, you know, Nepal was one of the reasons, that, so I also set a three-year deadline for Nepal, and one of the reasons was dating. Um, because I was like, I can't, I cannot go three years without dating anybody. I mean, it was just like, I felt like I was like, at the end of it, I felt like I was in a desert, like pulling myself towards like a mirage of some kind. Um, because as the, you know, I was the, basically the head of the office, um, one of the heads of the office of 350 staff members and the main partner with the UN Refugee Agency, which had another 300 staff members. And then we're living in this really small village, basically, in eastern remote Nepal. And so everything you do is watched. I mean, everyone has your number. They know all your personal habits. They know what laundry you're hanging outside. Like, they know, they know everything about you. So to date someone that's from that local um, vicinity just seemed completely impossible. And of course I can't date someone who's working for us because I'm ultimately in charge of most of them. So, um, so that was really challenging. And so um, I, tend, I tended a lot of the time to sort of like date Americans long distance, which never worked out very well. Um, but uh, in Baghdad, it was almost in a way more normal because I lived in an embassy compound with thousands of people. So I actually dated someone for like six months straight there. We lived in the same place, which was, which was nice. <laughs> but then I moved to Nepal. So yeah, but so when I came to DC, I basically was like, I'm going on a date right away. <laughs> and I did, and we're still dating, so. Yeah. <laughs> See, and just when you think you're out of Nepal, yeah. a terrible earthquake happens. Yes, two and terrible you get earthquakes. Called back. Yeah. Um, when that earthquake happened, um, what did you think about? Like, what? What? Our reaction, of course, was all shock and how horrible. But you would have known people there, so yeah. What, you could. Yeah. Even... I mean, the earthquake. Uh, I. Um, you know. It's kind of like in Baghdad where people nonstop talk about like rocket fire and attacks and kidnapping and evacuation and all of this stuff. In Nepal, all anybody talked about was the earthquake. Because everyone knew it was coming. Um, everyone predicted it. All of the NGOs and agencies had constantly were having summits and workshops and preparedness meetings and all of this. Um, and so, I mean, the first thing I thought when it happened was it finally happened, right? Um, but then I also felt sort of a sense of relief because it, I hate to say this, but it wasn't nearly as bad as everybody thought it would be. Um, I mean, the, the prediction was that, um, was that the cell phone service would sort of be cut off, that the roads out of the valley would be, um, would be rendered unusable. And th the most important thing was that everyone thought that the airport tarmac would go, that it would fold. Because the tarmac is a temporary tarmac that was put in place like 30 years ago. It's supposed to last 10 years. It was never replaced. The airport's a mess. Um, lots of things I could say about that. But anyway, so basically, we thought the country would be cut off. Um, and they predicted that like sort of in the end, two years out, that maybe up to a million people would die um, from things like cholera and lack of aid relief and all of this stuff. So um, that didn't happen, thankfully. Um, and so the, the damage was really, and, and really a lot of buildings that everyone thought would collapse stayed standing. So it was really a miracle in a lot of ways. So I was, I was grateful. 
Yeah. And the second earthquake happened as you're descending in, in the plane. Yeah, so the second oh. earthquake happened about an hour before I landed. Um, yes. I was on a Qatar Airways flight, and we landed. And it was really weird because the airport was, like, dark. I mean, it was weird, but it's also Nepal. So I was like, oh, okay, the airport's <laughs> not open today. Um, There's, like, nobody at immigration. They waved me through. I, and, then, um, and then we got to the office, and everyone was outside. And this, it was because the second earthquake had happened. And that really shook people because everybody had sort of, things had started to go back to normal. I got there about three weeks after the first earthquake. And then after the second one, I mean, a lot of people sort of fell apart. And a lot of houses that had been in the, in the most affected districts that had been sort of leaning from the first earthquake collapsed. Yeah. One of the things I read in a, one of the articles about you in the earthquake was that your job was essentially to get there and recruit a hundred plus people to work on the effort yeah. to help. At like, how do you recruit 100 people in a, during a natural disaster? Yeah, so, we, so what we do is when an emergency occurs, we send in what we call a surge team, which has sort of just key actors on it. Um, and they land, they hit the ground running, and they set up all of the initial, uh, we call them humanitarian hubs. So they're respo disaster response camps. Um, we had one in Chautra and one in Gorka, which are the most affected districts. Um, and, but they, they burn out very quickly because they're working 20-hour days and they're living under very difficult circumstances and tents, et cetera, et cetera. And so about three to four weeks after the initial emergency, you need to both replace them and also get your staff in place. Um, and we were a little behind this with Nepal because of a bunch of different factors. So when I landed, the Nepali staff working for us, which is about 70 of them in Kathmandu, I mean, they hadn't had a day off in three weeks. And they had family members that were injured. A couple had family members that died. Their houses were affected. And here they're coming to work every single day, um, which is an amazing testament to Nepali society. Um, but they were tired, and they needed a day off. And they needed um, a break from the foreign staff that had come in and were working with them and maybe weren't the most respectful. Um, and so I, so basically our goal was to hire as many people as quickly as possible to let them start taking leave. We gave them all two weeks off. Um, and so uh, we just, we, we worked out of this driver's room on a weird refugee compound that we have for like refugee resettlement cases that come through on their way to the U.S. Um, and we just posted it online and we just interviewed as many people every day as we could. Um, and were you just like, yes, 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 yes. I think mean, like, that's what I Basically, mean. Basically, yeah. Like we try, you know, so I, my experience before, before this was downsizing the Nepal office because the refugee resettlement program is ending. And when you hire poorly in emergencies, you have a lot of problems when you downsize later. So I tried to sort of be by the book. Um, but it just meant everybody working really long days because to actually conduct real interviews and, and all of that. But Nepal, I mean, sadly, Nepal has a really educated and very available workforce. So I don't know what it would be like in another place where not as many people were available. But we were very easily able to recruit really talented people. So what now? What are you doing now? Yeah. You're not in Nepal. You're not staying in Seattle. No, forever. unfortunately. She is staying for the weekend. Aww. So what do you, what's next for you? So I'm now in sort of an administrative, administrative headquarters-y job um, for the next couple of years. And I'm nominally based in D.C. and Geneva with some work in New York. Um, and it's good. I needed a break. 
So, but I'll still be traveling to a lot of different sites to give training. I'm going to Kazakhstan next. Um, we've been piloting the, the new version of the UNHCR training. We did it in Jordan, and I was just in South Africa to do it, which went great. And so Kazakhstan is next on our list. Um, so yeah, so that's, that's what I'm going to keep doing. Do you have a sense after all this moving around and being here and there and flying, even in your next assignment, you're all over the place? Mm-hmm. Do you have a sense of home? Anymore? I bought an apartment in Brooklyn a couple years ago so that I would have like a place to put my things. But do you consider it America your culture? I feel now that America is just another country, which is something that happened very recently to me. Um, I used to feel when I came home that I was like re-entering American culture and I was sort of like back in my society and now I feel like I'm just going to another place, which is a little alienating. Um, but I think when you spend enough time away from America, you start to see it as just another place. You also get unattached from the brainwashing about American exceptionalism and this like we're number one thing that we're all raised with that everyone in the rest of the world is completely bewildered by. Um, and once you, I think a lot of people in America are actually unattached from that, but I wasn't, definitely wasn't. So I think once I sort of started to see that, then it became... You so know. once we're just another country, what stands out to you about like the way America is in comparison to other places you've been beyond the exceptionalism? Um, what culturally can we not see about ourselves? Question. Americans work really long hours and do not take enough vacation. That would be the number one thing I would say. <laughs> I mean, I've really noticed that just because I work for a European organization and I've spent a lot of time in Europe, and Americans really, but I don't know that we're more productive in, in the work that we do. I mean, I haven't been here in a long time, so I really shouldn't be saying this, but I think this 40-hour work week thing where people stay late at the office and then like they only take two weeks off a year or whatever, I don't know how productive or useful that is. Does that mean that, that, my that you working in a high-stress refugee camp are actually taking more time I off. I guess six weeks of leave a year. And not only that, but when you're in a hardship duty station, you get R&R. So in Baghdad, I got up to four months a year off. I, of course, I was working when I wasn't there. I was always working on vacation, but it's, you know, you're on vacation at least. And then in Nepal, I got an extra two months off a year. So now I've lost that, and I'm down to a paltry six weeks a year. Welcome home. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> And you only brought four parasites with you. Yes, that's true. It was worth it. Yeah. Um, So, well, thank you. Thank you so much for sharing your story. That's all for this episode of The Bittersweet Life. Please subscribe on iTunes, give us a rating, and consider supporting the show. We need your financial commitment to keep the show growing and going in the months to come. You support a lot of nonprofits and charity projects, I bet. Please don't forget to support independent art like this. You'll find a way to donate in the upper right-hand corner of our website, thebittersweetlife.net. Thank you. Talk to you next week. (laughs) ¶¶